This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odeschulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that examines contemporary issues from the perspective of the principles of the Baha'i Faith. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i Faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org. That's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G. Or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I was recently at a conference called Cultivating Spirituality at the Baha'i Conference Center named Greenacre in Elliott, Maine. I had the fortunate privilege of interviewing Dr. Jim Sacco, the co-administrator of the Greenacre Institution with his wife, Janine. Jim got his doctorate in education at the University of Massachusetts. After getting married and having two small children, Jim quit his job as an assistant professor at the University of Maryland to go to serve the Baha'i faith in Paraguay. Eventually, the Saccos ended up in Brazil starting up a school called the School of Nations, which is a Baha'i-inspired school in the town of Brasilia. In this interview, Jim shares his thoughts and experiences of living as an American in Brazil. I started off the interview by asking Jim where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. I uh, grew up in West Hartford, Connecticut. Mm -hmm. It was kind of suburbia. Mm -hmm. Went to some good schools. My father was a trial lawyer and very much uh, enthusiastic about education, his own education and our education. Both of them were from Italian-American families. My aunts and uncles were all from, you know, that cultural group. Uh, We didn't speak Italian as we were growing up, but my uncles did, my grandparents did. And so when we would go to family parties, we'd hear Italian spoken. And also... Italians are very musical, and so there would always be music, and somebody would be playing opera, somebody would be singing opera, somebody would be playing the classical piano, you know, lots of music with my aunts and uncles. So you could understand Italian easily? I I couldn't, no, I I couldn't really understand it. So when the relatives were having their conversation, you just could get... You know, I think that, uh, I think that, you know, there's a certain Latin feel, you know, to... The, our family life, but it, it was there was always this uh, you know, what do you call it kind of a tension of you know my mother and and her father's generation had faced a lot of barriers in terms of being accepted in you know the wider society, and uh, so in some ways they were defensive about being Italian, they were sort of like, we're, you know, we're just as American as anybody else. So assimilation and, was yeah, a big deal. Yeah, it was a big, big issue. And that's why they didn't want us to learn the, the language and, and uh, or really to be that identified with the culture, you know. Mm. And, you know, now that we have children, have brought them up as bilingual children, we say, well, my goodness, what a loss. So how long were you in West Hartford? Well, I mean, I was actually born in 1945 in New York City. My, my dad was stationed at uh, Staten Island. He, you know, he was in the Army. 
but we moved to West Hartford in 1946. So basically from 1946 till I graduated from high school in 1963, for 18 years, you know, I, I lived in West Hartford. And then where did you go from there? Uh, well, I went. I did my undergraduate work at Harvard, so I lived in Cambridge from 63 to 67. Mm -hmm. Then I, I... And what did you study? I started off in, in what political science, there they call it government, because my ambition initially was to become a lawyer like my dad. Mm -hmm. But then I found that I enjoyed working with children and working with youth, and I uh, wanted to become a teacher, so... Then I got into a social relations course, which is basically sociology and psych psychology. While you were an undergraduate? While I was still an undergraduate. And then I went to the Stanford Graduate School of Education. In California? California. I didn't complete my degree there because I got involved with anti-war activities. Mm -hmm. I also wanted to start teaching rather than continue to study, so mm -hmm. uh, I, I did not continue my studies at Stanford, but I got a teaching job in Massachusetts because the man who was teaching me the Baha'i faith, Dwight Allen, was my major professor at Stanford, and then he had moved to UMass, and so he helped me to get a job in the Massachusetts area. And where, what park? Um, I was actually... Uh, in my first job, I was the teacher principal of the Shutesbury Elementary School. Oh, right near Amherst. Right near Amherst. That, I mean, it was a very small school. I think I had, oh, I had something like 12 children in my class, which was the fifth and sixth grade class. And the other teachers also had small numbers of kids, so mm -hmm. it wasn't much of a, as much of a school, but yeah. it was my first experience as a teacher. So you had already become a Baha'i by this time? No, I had, you know, learned of the faith. I actually, when I was graduating from Harvard, I talked on the phone with this Dr. Dwight Allen, who was the head of the program that I was applying to at Stanford, mm -hmm. and had a very nice conversation with him. I was very interested in going to Stanford. And then that night, I happened to be at a, one of the buildings at Harvard, and I saw this poster that said, Dr. Dwight Allen from Stanford University will talk about the Baha'i faith. And that's the first time I saw the words Baha'i faith. No, wait, so what was the time interval between you talking on the phone, him being in California, to him then being in Harvard giving a talk? Well, it was actually the, the same day I saw the poster, but uh, it, was, it was for okay. a talk that he was going to give in like three or four, no, just, it was just three or four days later. Okay. He was going to give that talk. And unfortunately, even though I wanted to attend the talk, I had some other commitment that I, you know, when I look back on it, I said, why didn't I just cancel that commitment? But I, I just noted that. I made a mental note. Baha'i faith, interesting. When I get to California, I'll ask Dr. Allen about the Baha'i faith. And through those First conversations that I had with Dwight Allen is where I got interested in. Mm -hmm. In the faith. Okay, so then you're in Shutesbury, and you're the. You said you're the principal of a school. Yeah. What, what kind of school was yeah. it? It was an, ele a, an elementary school, mm -hmm. a public school. Mm -hmm. It was difficult to be both a first year teacher and a first year principal at the same oh, time. Yeah. Oh, right. Uh, yeah. But Dwight had a way of doing those innovative type mm -hmm. things, and. Uh, so you had built quite a relationship with this 
head of the education department in Stanford. Yeah, yeah. It's almost a, it's a personal relationship. Yeah, yeah. Because when I, when I was at Stanford, I would go to talk with him in his office, you know. You know, we'd talk about education and high schools and elementary schools and all that, but he would tell me about the Baha'i faith. You know, I, I was looking for... I was looking for some way that the world would achieve peace. And I had participated in protest marches and movements. I had studied Gandhi. I had studied Martin Luther King. And I was kind of into nonviolent protest, including civil disobedience. But my experience of the people that I met and worked with in these anti-war movements I wasn't particularly impressed that these people with drug problems and personality problems and difficulty in, you know, keeping groups together were really going to make a difference, you know. So when I encountered Dwight and I I sensed that this Baha'i faith was aimed at achieving world peace and the people who were part of the Baha'i community seemed to be positive and had led positive, happy lives, you know, I thought to myself, well, this has more of a chance of actually getting there. And that impressed me. Okay, so tell me about your first year as principal and teacher at the same time. You know, I had a rough time because the school board was very conservative. And they regarded me, I had, you know, long hair and a mustache, and they regarded me as kind of too hippie and they regarded me as too liberal because I remember having a McCarthy sticker on my car you know and, which wasn't the thing to do in this small town at that time you know so you know the school board would be upset about this and the superintendent would call me in and say now the school board doesn't want you doing this and after you know being there for six months I, I decided that it wasn't a good situation for me what Dwight had done was that he had sent his some of the staff members from the School of Education to give me tips and observations and give me some help, which, which helped a lot. But I, most of my experience in working with children had been in camp settings rather than in a, in a school setting. So I was you know, just brand new. But the more difficult aspect was sort of this townspeople, or the school board, was suspicious of me as a young, liberal college student. You know, they wanted to make sure that I was not leading the kids off in the wrong, the wrong direction. You know? So what happened after six months? Well, Dwight had invited me to apply to the graduate program at the University of Massachusetts, so I became a full-time student at the University of Massachusetts School of Education. And that's where you finished your master's degree? Actually, I didn't get a master's. I went straight from the bachelor's degree to the doctoral degree. Okay. So it took me from 1968 to 1971 to finish the requirements for the degree. So what happened after that? Well, Janine and I considered... Uh, we, we had gotten married in 1970. So Janine was from the area, or how well, did that happen? Janine was uh, from Minneapolis, Minnesota. She was also studying at the University of Massachusetts. Okay. So she and I met at the Baha'i club meetings. Mm -hmm. Now, had you become a Baha'i at this point? Yeah, I, okay. I became a Baha'i, let's see, it was October of 
1968. Mm -hmm. I became a Baha'i. Okay. And Janine had become a Baha'i in September of 68. So were you already, were you at the school or were you a doctoral student? Yeah, I was a doctoral student at that time. Mm -hmm. So we had gotten married. We had met in the Baha'i Association. Mm -hmm. I was elected chairperson, and she was the vice chairperson. Oh, the Baha'i Club. The Baha'i Club. And we did, you know, a lot of service together, a lot of work together. Mm -hmm. Became good friends and decided we wanted to get married. Mm -hmm. We considered pioneering in French, in a French-speaking country. We had actually, were taking, I was taking so classes. For, in, for our listeners, pioneering is when Baha'is leave their home country to go to a foreign land for the service of letting people know about the Baha'i faith. And there is no clergy, so when someone goes to a foreign land, they have to get a job and work as well as try to do what they can to help with the Baha'i faith in that foreign land. So you were thinking about that. Yeah, we were thinking about that, but we finally... Um made the decision that we were going, not going to move overseas. Okay. I, we had been doing... And what, and what, was, what were the driving forces of that decision? Um, you know, I was having difficulty learning French. And being a teacher, I knew that I needed the language in order to earn a living. I think I just sensed that I, I wasn't ready. So I took a job in the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, in... Uh, August of 1971, I, you know, started work there. Mm -hmm. Doing what? And, uh, well, I was an uh, assistant professor of education because I had earned my doctorate, and, and uh, so I worked both for the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and for one of the public school systems, coordinating uh, their pre-service and in-service teacher education programs. Mm -hmm. And so how long were you in uh, that area? We actually stayed in Maryland for six years, from 1971 to 1977. Mm -hmm. Our children were born, you know, one was born in Baltimore, one was born in Washington, D.C., and uh, then we decided, now we're ready to go pioneering, so... And what, what made the difference? I think one of the things that made a difference was that we, we thought it would be better to ha educate our children in a pioneer post than it would be in American society, that was one of the mm -hmm. one of the, one of the aspects. And what um, what was it that you saw the advantage of by doing that? Well, that that the um, you know the children wouldn't be in such a materialistic environment. Mm -hmm. So it always had been, you know, even in, when we were in Massachusetts, always been our goal. Well, we want to find a way to get into a pioneer post. So it was always in the back of your mind over yeah. the six years or yeah. whatever. Yeah, And then some friends of ours who had also graduated from UMass and were pioneering in Brazil, they were helping us to arrange, helping me to arrange a job in, in, uh, in Brazil. So Brazil was looked at mo mainly because of these friends that were there. Was a connection that you had or was there well, something about Brazil? You know, I had sort of on an intuitive level, had always wanted to travel and work in South America. I didn't know where, but something about South America attracted me even before I was a Baha'i. Interesting. So kind of on a subconscious level, I, my destiny was somehow tied up with South America. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this 
happened to be, you know, a university job in southern Brazil. Turned out that it was a Catholic university. They were not able to help me get my work visa. And Janine and I spent many hours, you know, trying to get the Brazilian consulate in Washington to give us a visa, and they, they, they wouldn't do it. So finally, we gave up on Brazil, but we had sold our house, we had sold our cars, I had resigned my job, and we, so we said to the Pioneer Committee, where else in South America do you want us to go? And they said, well, you could go to Paraguay or you could go to Uruguay. So we chose Paraguay, and that, that was our... Why is that? I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I remember we went over to the house of... Um, it was a, a professor at the University of Maryland at the other campus, a College Park campus, who had lived and worked in Paraguay, and so we went over to his house and learned something about Paraguay from him and his wife, mm -hmm. and uh, we kind of liked it. You were able to get a job there? Uh, no. We tried to, you know, for a while we lived off our savings, and then we didn't have any more savings to live off of, so I would teach English, Janine would teach English, mm -hmm. and I had gone to some of the universities in that town. We ended up settling in the second most populous town in Paraguay, which is only 47,000 people. What's the name of it? Encarnacion. It's right on the southern border with Argentina. But Catholic University obviously knew, you know, why we were there, and they weren't about to, you know, give me a job. And so we were, I was basically unemployed, and, and you know, we had two kids. And, How old were they? Uh, Mark was four, and Lisa was one and a half. So... When you look back on it, it was kind of, you could either call it courageous or you could call it foolish, you know. But I, I think we basically had faith. And what happened was we met the Brazilian vice consul who lived in that town. Uh, and he and his wife became our good friends. And then when we were offered a job in Brazil, we, we went to Brazil one time, uh, took a bus ride that included, you know, in the middle of the night, they, they get you off the bus, and they put the bus on this ferry, and they ferry the bus across without passengers, and then they ferry the passengers across on another boat, and then you get back onto your bus, you know. Is it across the Amazon, or? No, no, it's not in the Amazon. It was southern, southern Brazil. But uh, they obviously didn't have a bridge over that, that river, river, you know. Yeah. Uh, and so we met this American couple who were serving at a, an American school in southern Brazil. They wanted to leave southern Brazil and go to the Amazon. So they convinced the board at this school if, you know, to hire us as teachers at that school. So what kind of school was this? It was an American school, small American school. Didn't have very many American students. They were mostly Germans and uh, Chileans and... French and you know, was, you know, other European nationalities that had businesses and or diplomatic work, you know, in southern Brazil. And your position was? Well, I was the uh, taught grades four to eight, and was also the principal of a school. And Janine uh, taught grades kindergarten through three. So it was basically two staff members for twenty-two children. Very small school, but you know, provided us with the stability of a good job and a good salary. And, and yeah. how long were we in Paraguay before you moved? Just six months. Okay. So not quite enough time to learn Spanish. In the States, when we thought we were going to Brazil, we had studied Portuguese. 
which is different from Spanish. And then we ended up going to Paraguay, so then we had to forget the Portuguese and learn the Spanish. And then we even learned a few words of their, their native dialect, uh, Guarani. And then when we left Paraguay and went to Brazil, we had to forget the Spanish and pick up the Portuguese. And luckily the job that we had, they provided us with free, English, uh, free Portuguese lessons every Tuesday and Thursday, which we were very assiduous about. And we, you know, we learned to, to uh, speak. And your kids were still preschool at this time, so they weren't going to school yet. Well, Mark, I think when we moved there, it was five, maybe it was five. It was August of seventy-seven, so he, I guess, was four and a half. I think he went into the kindergarten program, but Lisa was too young. Mm -hmm. She was just, you know, like two years old. And the kindergarten program was English or Portuguese-based? No, there was, it was that was an English language school. So it was part of the same school you were working at. Yeah. The school that had actually uh, Baha'i teachers for, there had been uh, uh, Tim and Susie Porch had taught there, and then Jack and Sue von Fresenkevich had taught there, taught there, and then Jim and Janine. So there was three successive Baha'i couples. Was, that, and it was, this school was sponsored by, I guess, some... Well, it's the American government, you know, kind of starts US them. Government? Yeah, yeah, U.S. Oh. government kind of starts them off. And okay. this one, I think, had sort of an independent status, although it, it you know... The and who did you report to? A board, you know, a board. In local, too? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but it was affiliated with a, a, a network of American schools in Brazil and a network of American schools in South America. Mm -hmm. So basically, it was an American school. And uh, the you know there was one Portuguese lesson a day for each one of the students, and, mm -hmm. but that's how we kind of got into the international school business and learned you know how to how to operate in that kind of a context, and, and we found we enjoyed it you know because mm -hmm. it's so much more interesting if in your classroom you have kids from different countries and they can you know bring their cultural understanding and their culture into the into the classroom and. Uh, so we learned to enjoy it. Mm -hmm. One thing that we, we found very interesting was that the Baha'is of Porto Alegre didn't speak one word of English with us, even though some of them knew English. They said, for this couple, it's cold turkey, you know. So we went to, we were two weeks after we had arrived, we were elected to the local spiritual assembly, the local governing body, everything in Portuguese. We ourselves, made efforts to, you know, go out to the villages and, the, you know, the smaller towns and participate in Baha'i activities, everything in Portuguese. So, but it was good. We had, we had to... The intention was to get you up to speed quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And not to, you know, not to baby us, not to coddle us with lots of English. Translation. So that, that I think, was one noteworthy thing. We also met... Um, Before you do that, yeah. how long did it take you to become fluent? After arriving, and these lessons two nights a week, etc. It it probably took most of the two years that we were there to you know get confident and be able to get around and under you know for people to understand us and yeah it took a good a good two years and still you you know we would mix our Spanish and our Portuguese and yeah. so what was the other thing you were going to the Baha'i faith was brought to Brazil by an American woman who, at the age of 22, she had graduated from Vassar College, 1921. So she had taken a cruise ship to Salvador 
which is in northeastern Brazil. And the first year that I was in Brazil, I had the privilege of going to a teaching conference where this lady, Leonora Holsapel Armstrong, was present and gave a talk. So she had, in 1920? 1921. And in this, well, now we're talking about the 19, when this teaching conference was? 1977. So she okay. was almost, I think she was, let's see, she must have been born about 1900, since she was 22 in 1921. Okay, so she was probably in her 70s. So she was, yeah, like in her late 70s when I saw her there. Mm-hmm. You know, she was this frail woman, and she had, she had so much osteoporosis that her neck would you know, wouldn't support itself, so she had to have this kind of chin brace. But she, uh, you know, people told us that even at this, you know, with all this illness, uh, she would go to work every day translating the writings into, from English into Portuguese. Mm. And many of the Baha'i books that people have in Brazil were the result of this translation that she did, you know. She passed away three years later in 1980. And I remember that date as well because we were hosting this big education conference in, uh, in Brasilia. Just as the conference was opening, the news came to us that she had passed away. Mm. And so we dedicated, it was a conference on education, we dedicated the conference to her memory. Mm-hmm. Lots of other stories about her, how she was very shy, she didn't want to speak in public. She didn't have confidence to speak in public. Mm -hmm. But the very act of going to another country, Mm -hmm. um, it does something to you, you know. It it, it gives you more confidence and self-assurance that you can do new things, that you can stretch, that you can challenge yourself, you know. Mm -hmm. And so she, some, I just, I think she'd only been in Brazil about a month or two months and she was invited to this Esperanto conference. She spoke Esperanto mm. and was invited to speak to 400 people, which she did with great skill. And, mm. and there she was, you know, this shy young lady that didn't like to speak to audiences, you know, speaking to 400 people. Mm. So that, as I sometimes describe it this way, you know, once you take the risk of I'm going to leave my country and go to another country, uh, any other risk that you take seems minor in comparison, you know. So it, it, one of our teachers at University of Massachusetts, Dan Jordan, used to say that uh, an important part of education is that you kind of fall in love with your own potential mm-hmm. and you work to develop that potential throughout your, your life. You know? mm-hmm. So for me, that's one of the lessons you learn uh, that you can, you can accomplish a lot more than you thought you could accomplish, but it does take this faith and, and assurance. Mm-hmm. So you were at this American school, it sounded like, for two years? Yes. Um, and then what happened after that? Well, um, then the National Teaching Committee in Brazil was calling on the Baha'is in Brazil to go to the Central Western region. We got jobs in the mayor's office in this capital city called uh, Goiania. Well, we were, we were consultants basically working on teacher training programs and school supervisor training programs, even though our Portuguese was still pretty basic. But 
the people that we worked with had studied some of the methods that had been developed at Stanford and you know that we were familiar with and so they wanted our help in that way so we got those jobs but in, at the same time the a couple that we had met at the school in the southern Brazil had been talking with us about well let's start our let's start our own school uh, let's start a Baha'i inspired school what you now call it you know a school based on Baha'i principles or a school done by teachers you know for teachers and by teachers so they had moved to Brasilia and we had you know we moved 200 kilometers away about you know 120 miles away and on the weekends we would get together with this couple and we'd start planning this Baha'i inspired school that was 79 into 1980 and then in 1980 we decided to take the jump and found this school because the American school in Brasilia had entered into a crisis because one of the things about Americans overseas is that uh, American parents pass on to their children a certain attitude of cultural superiority. America is superior, American culture is superior, Americans are superior. And when the kids bring this into a school setting, you know, they run into trouble because Brazilian kids and Brazilian parents don't want to be told they're inferior. So a conflict developed in the school between the Brazilian parents and the American parents, and it got kind of ugly and kind of bitter, you know. So the Brazilian parents heard that we were thinking of starting a school, so they came to us and said, look, if you'll start the school now, we'll transfer our kids to an American school, and, you know, you can start with this student base, you know. So we consulted, and we decided we would do it. Mm. And that was in September of 1980. But I continued to work in, in the mayor's office, so I had two jobs. One was in Brasilia, one was in Guyana. Oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah, I was... I mean, most of my time I spent, you know, with my family in, in Brasilia, but I would fly to Guyana and have meetings with the supervisors and project coordinators, and I think for about maybe a year, year and a half into the new school. Mm. And, you know, then this school started with 17 students and then it had 37 students and then 85 students and then 120 students. just kept growing and growing. And mm. 26 years later, the school is still going strong and, uh, you know, has 650 students and is now owned by the National Spiritual Assembly. What's the name of the school? It's called the School of the Nations because Brasilia has over 80 embassies and so people from the embassies want to have a bilingual education for their children. The school educates both in English and in Portuguese. So in essence it's a private school? It's a private school, yeah. yeah and, it's, and it's based on you know, Baha'i principles. Mm -hmm. Aren't that many Baha'i teachers there but mm -hmm. um, the administration is, you know, the director is a Baha'i. Mm -hmm. You know, it's now known as one of the best private schools in the city of Brasilia. Mm. And it's known as the Baha'i School or the United Nations School, a school believe, that believes in the oneness of humankind. Mm. You know, and that's kind of another example, I think, of, you know, it was our dream, and we were, I guess, given the courage to say, well, you know, maybe this is going to work, maybe it's not going to work, we'll, we'll try it, we'll see if it, we'll see what happens, you know.
every student we saw as a world citizen, this is another Baha'i concept, that we're citizens of our own native country, but we're also citizens of the world. So that concept of world citizenship was basic to being at the School of the Nations. Over the course of the 1980s and the 1990s, there were many conflicts between nations whose children were studying at the School of the Nations. But the children had internalized this principle of our friendship with this young boy from Iraq is stronger than the fact that my country is at war with his country. So there were a number of incidents where kids would, you know, be taunting an Iraqi boy and say, well, you know, your country's at war with these American kids. Don't you guys want to fight? And the kids would say, no, 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 we're here we're all about peace, you know. So the kids themselves understood, you know, what they were about. We had another example of, uh, again, an Iraqi student who had, during our United Nations festival, she had, we, they, she had chosen a doll that she liked and she had to, you know, sort of reproduce this doll. I think it was kind of a drawing, you know, mm -hmm. and the doll was from Israel. So this young Iraqi lady, whose name was Maha, she drew her doll and she put her name Maha up on top of the paper and below she put Israel, you know. Well, her father was the minister counselor at the Iraqi embassy. And when he saw that, he was like livid, you know. And he came and protested to us that, you know, he didn't want his daughter's name associated with Israel. Mm -hmm. And we wouldn't back down. We explained to him, you know, look, this is a project that the whole third grade had to do. And out of, you know, innocence and purity of heart, you know, this young lady chose this doll. We're not going to. You know, manipulate it. Yeah, turn it, turn back on it. You know. So, those were just a couple of mm. stories that. So what? What was he? Did he acquiesce? Did he like? I'm going to pull my daughter out. I mean, what? <laughs> no, no, he didn't pull his daughter out. He did. He did acquiesce. Uh -huh. The we later heard that the, you know, the Iraqis when they go to a city like that are in a difficult position. Do do I put my children in the American school so they can learn English? But if I do that, I'm making a political statement. I trust the American school. Or do I take my children and put them in a Baha'i school? Well, you know, maybe, you know, Muslims don't think much of the Baha'i faith, but these seem to be good teachers, and they seem to respect our children, and so we'll put them there. So we were able, actually, to have many Muslim children in our school, and the Muslim community made statements like, We've never been in a school in the West where our religion was as respected as it is in the School of the Nations. We even taught a, a, a course in the seventh grade where the children studied Islam and the Quran and, and saw its influence in history. So it was kind of the Islam and history. And they loved it. The parents loved it. And many times our Baha'i teachers knew more about Islam than the kids knew or their parents knew. So even though there were some uncomfortable moments where, you know, if, um, this one father from Turkey came and said, now, now, how is it that my daughter has chosen Tahereh to do a research project? Who is Tahereh and where does she come from? And, you know, once you kind of explain things to parents, they're reasonable about it. And, just, and just I think for our the listeners, yeah. uh, Tahereh was a great, great Persian poet during the uh, 19th century, but she also happened to be a very ardent Babi, which was the forerunner 
of the Baha'i faith. So I think it was that aspect of her history that probably he was concerned about. Mm -hmm. And, you know, once it was explained that, you know, he let the project go ahead. Mm -hmm. And, And I think it was a matter of, you know, many religions that founded many schools in South America founded the school for to indoctrinate a population. And so we always took the opposite position. We're not founding the school to indoctrinate anybody. We're, we're hoping to live a Baha'i life and to demonstrate the Baha'i principles in action, you know, through this project. And people came to trust us and believe us and, uh, you know, entrust their children to us. And I think this was one time one of the Brazilian diplomats in a kind of a unguarded moment. I mean, he was from a family that had been, you know, five generations of Brazilian diplomats, including, you know, ambassador to France, you know. And he made the statement that at a time when Brazilians were upset with the the Americans, the people who came to serve the Brazilians were the American Baha'is. So in the minds of these diplomats, there's a distinction between the Americans and the American Baha'is. So we, we always thought, well, that's a good, that's kind of a good statement that people from the country would trust us and would come to know that if you, if you collaborate with or you work with or you trust the American Baha'is, they are worthy of your trust. And I think that's an important aspect of any kind of an educational project or development project is that you earn the trust of the local population. So how long did you continue with the school? Well, we were, we were there for 15 years. From 1980 to 1988, the school was kind of our private business in partnership with this other Baha'i couple and eventually other Brazilian uh, partners, Brazilian Baha'is and Persian Baha'i partners. And from 1988 to 1995, we had, all of the owners of shares in the school had donated these shares to the National Assembly, and the National Assembly had appointed me as the executive director, so I served as executive director from 1988 to 1995. So a total of 15 years we were, we were there. You know, one of the most memorable was that during the preparation for the Earth Summit in Rio, the Baha'i community, the offices, that that was in 1992, where they were sending many representatives to Brasilia to help in the planning and to coordinate the planning with the Brazilian government. So a lot of these Baha'is would stop at the school and give presentations to the kids, and they were very pleased at how the level of environmental knowledge that our students had and a number of different projects, including one with UNICEF, sort of grew out of that. But then the school was invited to be present at the global forum of the Earth Summit. So our students were able to perform at a couple of occasions during the, the Earth Summit. And they also participated. They, they sang you know, songs with the theme of the oneness of mankind. And the Baha'i community in Brazil was very much involved in the sort of civil society aspect of the conference. Our school children also participated in the dedication of this peace monument in Rio where 
an inverted pyramid on top of a pyramid was the basic structure and then there was a glassed in enclosure between the two pyramids and earth from many different countries was sent to that ceremony to be poured into the into the pyramid as kind of a peace monument so our students were the ones that kind of handed the earth from Germany and from Japan and from the United States and from Ecuador you know they they were involved in that mm. kind of solemn ceremony uh, and, and a, a video was done of the school at that time by Gil Murrow who is a technical director at NBC TV and that helped us to get the message of the school out around and mm. another highlight is when we dedicated our new building in 1987 the um, Secretary of Public Works gave a wonderful talk about the significance of dedicating the building of this of the School of the Nations. You know, he he compared it to the fact that the city of Brasilia had been honored by the United Nations as such an important city that it, it needed to kind of meet these United Nations standards. Mm-hmm. So he said the same week that the United Nations is recognizing Brasilia. Brasilia is recognizing the this unique uh, international school. It's just it was, and then of course later on the uh, gentleman who was a member of the Chamber of Deputies, the one who proposed the solemn session in honor of Baha'u'llah on the hundredth anniversary of his passing. Why don't you explain a little bit about yeah. that? Yeah, in 1992, the Brazilian Congress was the only Congress in the world to schedule and hold a ceremony honoring the 100th anniversary of the passing of the founder of the Baha'i Faith, Baha'u'llah. And Janine and I were privileged to be invited to that ceremony. There were six different talks by representatives of the entire political spectrum about Baha'i principles, about Baha'u'llah, quality of women and men, the elimination of the extremes of wealth and poverty, the situation of the Baha'is in Iran, uh, and then the president of the National Congress read this letter he had received from the Universal House of Justice. Our International Governing Council for the Baha'is. It was a very moving letter, and in in the letter there was this, they had enclosed this prayer for legislative assemblies written by Baha'u'llah, revealed by Baha'u'llah. Mm-hmm. It was this very moving that this man, you know, Israel Pinheiro, known as, known as sort of a hard-nosed, uh, behind-the-scenes wheeler dealer. wheeler dealer, you know, reading this prayer of Baha'u'llah with such reverence and such feeling, you know. Everybody was just in tears, you know. And, and, and also, we had this experience of, you know, he said, well, it, it was hard to believe that here we were in a Congress and this honor was being accorded to Baha'u'llah. And uh, it was kind of a totally new uh, dimension of, of recognition of the station of Baha'u'llah. It's really. So you said from 1988 to 1995, yeah. You were yeah. the executive director of the right, school. Right, right. So what happened beyond 1995? You know, we had been there for 15 years. We had been in you know leadership positions for 15 years. We came to feel like. The time had come for some new ideas, for some fresh blood, and, you know, the school needed another leader or leaders, you know. So it was time for us to move on. 
we were offered to coordinate this conference center in Brazil, but we were also offered the job here at Greenacre, the jobs at Greenacre. We had been concerned about our aging parents, and uh, so we, when we were, had to choose between the conference center in the United States, where we could be closer to our parents to help take care of them in their latter years, or the conference center in Brazil, we chose to come to Greenacre. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, once again, it was like, you know, just a feeling like that's too much of a challenge, you know, it, it's such a, an important center and, you know, it's way beyond our capabilities, but also feeling like, well, it's a challenge, it's a risk. We've taken on challenging tasks before, and so let's approach this one with the same. So Greenacre was an established institution that you yeah. came to. And since for ten and a half years we've, we've been here and we've seen a lot of wonderful things happen here and the school has grown in attendance and staffing and mm-hmm. outreach activities and mm-hmm. it's been uh, again another exciting experience and mm-hmm. last year was the 100th anniversary of the Russian-Japanese peace treaty which was negotiated in Portsmouth right next door to Elliott, Maine. And we were participating in this citywide commission to plan the 100th anniversary events. And the events that we held that kind of celebrated our history in 1904 and 1905 were really well received by the wider community. And many people participated in our public meetings and peace flag raisings and and different cultural programs that we did. So when we thought about the 100th anniversary... In 1905, Sarah Farmer had invited the Russian and the Japanese diplomats to visit the Greenacre Peace Center because in 1905 the summer courses were mostly about peace. Can you give just a brief summary of who Sarah Farmer is? Yeah, Sarah Farmer was uh, a woman who came from a transcendentalist family who founded a conference center in Elliott, Maine, uh, initially in 1894, and it gathered she invited Buddhist leaders and Hindu leaders and reform rabbis and to come and give lectures about their faiths, their beliefs, and also to encourage the participants to practice yoga or certain prayers. Or you know, then Sarah Farmer became a Baha'i and gradually transformed the Greenacre Center into a Baha'i Center. When she knew that President Theodore Roosevelt had chosen Portsmouth. She invited the president to visit Greenacre. He declined her invitation. Then she invited the Russian diplomats and the Japanese diplomats to visit Greenacre. And the Japanese diplomats accepted her invitation. So in August 31st, 1905, the second-in-command, who was the equivalent of the Japanese ambassador to the United States, and the delegation of diplomats and journalists visited Greenacre. We have photographs of them here on the grounds and some notes about the programs they participated in. So when we were planning our 100th anniversary celebration, we thought it would be fitting if the visitor on the 100th anniversary would also be the Japanese ambassador to the United States. It was not easy, but it turned out to be possible. And on September 4th, 2005, the Japanese ambassador came with his his assistant from the embassy in Washington, the Japanese consul general and his wife and his assistant from the Boston consulate, J- Japanese consulate in Boston came. 
we had a formal luncheon for them and then the ambassador gave a wonderful talk attended by almost 200 people about uh, peace in the 20th century and peace in the 21st century and you know in this talk he explained the foreign policy of Japan that has to do with promoting peace and also congratulated the Baha'is on efforts that we have made you know over the years to promote world peace mm. there was a time when we were planning this where I received this email that said you know the Japanese government is very cautious about associating itself with a religion and we wrote back and said we're having here basically historical observance but at Baha'i meetings we open with a prayer and close with a prayer and we'd like to share with you the prayers that we will open and close with and you know kind of set out for them this is what we plan to do and we invite your participation and after some delay you know then they decided to accept the invitation and, and come and you know have now become our fast friends at Greenacre we've had experiences to meet and build relationships with different cultures you know both African Americans within American culture Native Americans but also with Canadians and Japanese and, and Italians and you know we had visitors here from China so Jim what does the future hold for you at this point we're you know very much uh, enjoy you know working and serving at Greenacre mm-hmm. my parents have since you know passed on mm-hmm. and Janine's parents are in their 80s and requiring you know more care mm-hmm. now that our daughter is married and living in England and our son is married and living in Brazil we know that the future is going to hold more travel than we've been used to in the past mm-hmm. you know our, our tenure at Greenacre really depends on the are being able to be a part of this blurring of the distinctions that people make between who's a Baha'i and who's not a Baha'i. You know, we, we really feel, we're coming to feel that this institution needs to serve the American nation in a broader sense, not just serve the American, you know, Baha'i community. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much, Jim. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me and for such good and stimulating questions. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Jim Sacco, a Baha'i from Elliott, Maine, who lived in Brazil for 15 years and started up a school there called the School of Nations. If you want a copy of this interview or others from this broadcast, you're welcome to go to the website, abahaiperspective.com. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website, www.baha'i.org, or call the toll-free number, 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Shining light. Come on and make up me. Make up me a shining light.
country Glory in this that you love mankind We're the fruits of only one tree And the leaves of just one branch World citizens World citizens Unity The world cries for unity its rays are dawning like the sun Soon the world will be one Glory not in this that you love your country Glory in this that you love WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station.